as you can see, we have come to the 16th, to the final chapter of our studies here in the Gospel of Mark. So we will actually finish up um, next week. That'll be our final study in the series. And of course, we're here following the history. And Mark has written this beautiful, concise, um, but very rapid-paced account of the life, the ministry, the death, and now the resurrection of Jesus. And, you know, I love the, just the, the simplicity and the clarity of these resurrection accounts. You know, some people say, oh, the Bible, you know, is just full of legends and myths and things like that. And, and yet, when you read these accounts, there's nothing that even feels remotely legendary or mythological. They're just straightforward, just very uh, much the, the facts as they were, even to the point where uh, they talk about some doubted. You know, people were wondering, why, even the disciples were the ones who were doubting. And, and you know, that doesn't at all uh, resonate if, if somebody's trying to make up a story or somebody's trying to convince you uh, something is factual when indeed it's not factual, uh, you know, they're going to leave all of that humanity out of it. But the gospel writers never do that. They, it's just very much uh, a record as we would expect it. Now, uh, we're, we're just looking at Mark's account of the resurrection today. And Mark's account of the resurrection is probably the most brief of all of them. So there's plenty of other details that aren't in Mark that uh, if you put Matthew and Luke and John, if you put it all together, it doesn't change the story. It just fills it out a little bit. And, uh, but we're going to just stick really closely with uh, Mark here today. You know, having read over the text we're really going to just kind of zero in and talk about um, the resurrection, the fact of the resurrection, because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is as much a part of the gospel as his sacrificial death on the cross. And although we know that sometimes even in our speaking and sometimes even in our songs of worship, you know, we talk about the cross and we glory in the cross and that's all good. But we have to remember that the cross without a resurrection is basically meaningless. Everything that Jesus said and everything that he promised that he would do through his death on the cross, it really, you know, it stands or falls on whether or not he rose because if he rose, then everything he said is proven to be true. But if he did not rise, if he actually stayed dead, then, well, according to Paul the Apostle, if Jesus stayed dead, if he didn't rise, then our faith is in vain. And so we need to remember to keep those two things together. A dead Savior is no Savior. Our Savior is living, and he's our Savior we know we, we can have certainty because of the fact that he rose from the dead. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, he said something like this. He said, if the resurrection is not true, Christianity is of no consequence. If the resurrection is true, then Christianity is of ultimate importance. And he's pretty much there you know, just echoing what the New Testament says. Because again, everything hinges on the resurrection. So if it's not true, then this is of no consequence. Our gathering today is, um, you know, why, why even bother to do it? That was, that was the attitude of the uh, apostles and especially of Paul. <coughs> and so, of course, we are here today because we believe that the resurrection is true. And if the resurrection is true, then there are certain things that follow from that that are also true. 
and we're going to end up looking uh, at each one of these today, but let me just mention them real quickly. If the resurrection is true, then it's also true that there is a God. It's true that Jesus is that God. The Bible is proven to be true. Um, Heaven and hell are proven to be a reality. And the eternal destiny of each person is connected to Jesus Christ and whether or not one has a relationship with him. So those things follow from the resurrection, if the resurrection is indeed true. Now, like I said, we're going to come back to that and and look at that at the end. But what I want to do this morning um, is I want to look at some of the theories and you know some of the arguments against the resurrection because people have been denying the resurrection since it began to be proclaimed. Since Jesus rose from the dead, there have been those that have denied, and there are still plenty of deniers today. There are still people who are coming up with different alternative theories and naturalistic explanations and things like that. Uh, to try to dismiss the resurrection. So we want to look at some of those, just, just go through them and mention them fairly briefly. And, and then we want to also look at the evidences that support the resurrection. You know, we live in an age of um, radical skepticism. And so it's necessary for us to not only know what we believe, but to know why we believe it. And to know there's a, there's a good basis for believing what we believe. So we're going to look at those two things, and then we'll come back around to um, these five things that I mentioned just a moment ago. And as, as we look at these two, the, the theories that reject the resurrection and then things in support of the resurrection, um, just to give credit to whom credit is due, I... I found this list of things in the, the Christ-centered exposition commentary, so don't want to plagiarize by not acknowledging my source here. But uh, So let's look at these. First of all, naturalistic or alternative theories that reject the resurrection. So we're going to look at uh, 10 of these, but like I said, we'll do it rather uh, swiftly. So the first one is the swoon theory. And, you know, perhaps you've heard of that. Maybe you haven't. Um, the swoon theory was popularized by a book that was written, I think it was in the 60s. Um, might have been the 70s. But it, the book was called The Passover Plot. And in The Passover Plot, the author um, basically said that uh, the, the whole death and resurrection thing of Jesus. This is something that he strategically planned out himself. Uh, There wasn't really a death, nor was there really a resurrection. Jesus didn't die. He just swooned. And he was taken down off the cross. He had, because of the the intense physical trauma that he had gone through, he had uh, fainted. And um, they thought he was dead, so they put him in the tomb. And then there in the tomb, he was revived. You know, he woke up out of that state. And then, you know, somehow he unwrapped himself from the, the grave clothes that he had been wrapped in. And then he somehow also moved away the stone that was rolled against uh, or uh, across the front of the tomb. And anyway, he, he ends up reconnecting with his disciples, convinces them that he actually you know, died and rose again, and then they start to spread this uh, story. But in fact, he never did die or rise. He, he just swooned. Now, as we go through each one of these, this is what I want you to know. These are not ideas or theories that are just held by, you know, some ignorant people off in a corner somewhere. These are the ideas that you will hear communicated in the universities around the world. So like, you know, the smartest people in the world, um, they think things like this, that like the swoon theory, that this is, a, this is a valid explanation for what really happened 
over against this idea that Jesus really rose from the dead. So the swoon theory is the first. The second is the spirit theory. And this idea is held by many people today, Uh, many people who would refer to themselves as even progressive Christians. Progressive Christians are people um, who don't believe most of what the Bible says, don't believe in the miraculous and things like that. And so, you know, they label themselves as progressive. They used to be more well-known as, as liberal, uh, but today they're progressive. And th- but the idea here is that Jesus was not raised bodily, but he was raised spiritually. So there was actually no bodily resurrection of Jesus like the New Testament says, like we read about here in Mark, but um, he just, you know, his spirit rose. And so he's alive in the spirit realm, and that's how we um, understand the idea of the resurrection. It's interesting that uh, that idea is held among many, as I said, progressive Christians, but it's also an idea that is uh, promoted, uh, believed and promoted by the Watchtower Society. In a quote from the Watchtower Society, we know them as the Jehovah's Witnesses, Uh, They said this, King Christ Jesus was put to death in the flesh and resurrected an invisible spirit creature. So it's the same idea. It's a spirit theory. Um, No no actual bodily resurrection. Then thirdly, you have the hallucination theory. Um, The hallucination theory is that Jesus preconditioned his disciples um, through hypnosis to hallucinate. And so this is the explanation they give for the resurrection. It was a mass hallucination. Uh, Jesus somehow hypnotized them. And, you know, at a certain point, they began to promote the uh, theory that there was a resurrection. And then, fourthly, there's the legend or myth theory. And the legend or myth theory, again, this is a very common one as well among the progressive mind. Um, The resurrection is an embellished, exaggerated wonder story, they say, that developed over time, indicating the significance the mythical Jesus held over his followers. So in this theory, it's that Jesus didn't, of course, rise. But after time, uh, and the story being told over and over again, uh, finally you get to this place, well, Now it's embellished to the point that there was a resurrection. And then as in that line of thinking and among people who think like that, they would then keep following that out and they would say, and then, you know, sometime four or 500 years after the time of Christ, people even, they deified Jesus. They began to refer to him as a God. They believed that he was a God. And so in their minds, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He wasn't God in human flesh. This just, this developed over time. It's part of this um, legendary or mythological uh, thing that happened around Jesus. And then there's the stolen body theory. The stolen body theory is probably the oldest one because it's actually recorded for us in the New Testament. In the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew's account of the resurrection, uh, Matthew tells us that the Jewish leaders they bribed the the Roman soldiers to to say that his disciples came and stole the body. And Matthew tells us that this this, uh, story was being circulated among the Jews of his day. So the stolen body theory. And then there is, believe it or not, the wrong tomb theory. The wrong tomb theory is that the disciples just went to the wrong tomb, and it was an empty tomb. So, of course, the body wasn't there because it was the wrong tomb that they were at. And then the whole gospel went out into the world based on uh, these people going to the wrong tomb. Then there is also the life for profit theory. Uh, The life for profit theory is basically that after the disciples uh, recovered from their disappointment that Jesus wasn't really the Messiah, Uh, He didn't really rise from the dead. They decided, well, it's a fantastical story. Let's use it to make some money. So we will spread this story and get rich off of it. That, again, is a theory. Then there is the mistaken identity theory. 
Stake and identity is simply that. that um, the, it was actually probably the gardener at the tomb that they saw, but they mistook him for Jesus. Now, this is a little bit based on scripture because in John chapter uh, 20, where you have the resurrection account, um, you have the incident where Mary, uh, she sees the resurrected Jesus, but at first she thinks it's the gardener. But then she discovers through Jesus speaking to her that no, it's actually the Lord. So they got part of it right. There was a mention of a gardener, but they've taken it to this um, extreme of, of no, no actual resurrection, but it was just a case of mistaken identity. And then here's one that I had never heard before. And this one is quite interesting. It's the twin theory, that Jesus had an identical twin brother, no kidding, who he was separated from at birth, but conveniently showed up after his death and pretended to be Jesus. And nobody knew the difference because they looked just alike. This is a theory among academic thinkers. And then finally, and this one goes way back in history as well, this is the Muslim theory. So in Islam, uh, Muslims do not believe that Jesus actually died on the cross. He didn't die at all. Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet. He was a good man. God would never let him die. So God actually took him out of that scene and put a substitute in his place. So it was not Jesus who died on the cross. It was this substitute. And as to who the substitute might have been, there's been speculation among Islamic scholars that perhaps it was Judas, um, even Pontius Pilate. I don't know how they could have even connected that, but they, they theorized that it might have been Pontius Pilate, uh, Simon of Cyrene, or one of the other disciples. So these are the 10 best arguments against the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I might be just a little naive, but I don't think these arguments are very convincing myself. I think they're very, very weak. And if this is the best argument somebody has against the resurrection, um, I'm going to just stick with the resurrection. Because the, these ideas are really uh, quite absurd. And they don't stand up under scrutiny. Now, we're not going to take the time because we don't have the time. But, you know, you could rip to shreds every one of these ideas. And, and many people have, have done this. Um, as a matter of fact, it was in a debate with a, a leading apologist that an atheist guy suggested the, um, the twin theory, believe it or not. And so I could only imagine that it was William Lane Craig who was the Christian in the debate. I could only imagine what he thought when the guy came up with a twin uh, brother theory. Uh, it would have been hard not to roll your eyes at that point and just, you know, feel sorry for the person. So these are some of, there are, there are others, but these are some of the naturalistic or alternative theories uh, that reject the resurrection. Now, what are the evidences that support the resurrection? And there are many. I'm going to look at 10, but there are others. But let me just say the first one is, uh, as I just mentioned, that the naturalistic theories cannot stand up to careful analysis. And, and none of these theories really explain anything. They're just wanting to just deny that there's a resurrection. So they're going to come up with... Uh, any possible alternative to a resurrection. Secondly, the birth of the disciples' faith and the radical changes in their lives would be in evidence for the resurrection. Now, remember, if you've read through the Gospels, and we see it a little bit here, remember one of the things that surrounded the death of Christ in regard to the apostles was uh, tremendous fear. They were deathly afraid that they themselves were going to become the next victims of uh, Roman crucifixion. And so what they did is, you remember, they fled. 
They all fled and they hid and were even told specifically that they were in hiding for fear of the Jewish authorities. But then something suddenly changed. So they went from being so fearful that they fled from uh, the place of crucifixion and they were not seen in public then until 50 days later. And then after having been fearful, suddenly they reemerged back into public as bold as lions. And Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he began to preach and even to indict the religious leaders and say that, that God sent this Jesus whom you crucified, but it was impossible that death could hold him. God raised him from the dead and we are his witnesses. And you took him, you by your wicked hands, you crucified him and slew him, but God made him the, the savior. And then he calls him to repent. So there's this radical transition that moves them from being cowardice to being so bold that they would never deny Christ. They would actually end up, most of them, uh, going to a martyr's death rather than deny the resurrection of Jesus. So there was that aspect of it. Their faith is birthed. And then there's also the radical transformation that occurred in the lives of each one of these men. Then there is the empty tomb and the discarded grave clothes. So even though all of these other theories have been proposed, there's never been an explanation for the empty tomb. Well, the only explanation, I guess, is, well, it was the wrong tomb. Well, they could have navigated their way and found the right tomb. But it's interesting. You know, you can go to many sites in the world today, shrines. You can find the tombs of various religious leaders. You can even go to Israel. You can find the tombs of the kings. And, you know, you can go to Jordan today. And there um, in the, the mountains there uh, on the Jordanian side of the Dead Sea, uh, you can find a shrine there. And I don't think it's actually the the case, but they say that this is where Aaron, the brother of Moses, is buried. And, you know, you, you can find these kinds of things, uh, but you cannot find a burial place for Jesus because the tomb was empty. Not only was the tomb empty, but interestingly, the grave clothes remained behind. Now, so in, in the idea that you know, the body was stolen, it's interesting that these body snatchers would have actually taken the grave clothes off the body. Now, not only would that take some time to do, but what would be the purpose of that? But, you know, the biblical picture of the grave clothes is, is the way John describes it. It's as though the body was still there. The, the clothes were there like the body was still in them, but they were uh, flattened out because the body was gone. And then John tells us that the headpiece, the napkin that was around the head of Jesus when he was buried, it was folded up and put there at the head of the grave clothes. And again, you, th you think about these, these kinds of details. And this has never been explained. I mean, and who would even put something like this if it didn't happen? Who would even think to include something like, and, and the head, the, you know, the headpiece was folded up by itself, sitting there on the side. You know, this is the kind of stuff, it's hard to imagine that anyone would make up something like that. What would be the point? Then you have the fact that women reported the empty tomb first. Now, this is lost on us sometimes today because we don't understand the culture at the time. But in Jewish culture and under Jewish law, a woman could not testify because her testimony was not worth anything. It was of no value. Therefore, if I was going to present a case that I wanted to prove 
if, if this wasn't the way it happened, I would never, ever, ever say that women were the first eyewitnesses to this event because I would completely lose the case right there at the beginning because, of course, a woman's testimony is invalid. So here's the point. Why would they include something like this in the story if they were making this story up? Because that's the alternative. That's what, that's what all of the other theories are saying, right? That this story was made up by these people. But nobody would make up a story that they wanted people to believe, try to convince everybody that this is true in first century Jerusalem and say that our first witnesses to this story are women, a bunch of women. Wouldn't have happened. And so the fact that women reported the empty tomb first is a strong case for uh, things being the way that the gospels say they were. Uh, another thing is the change. And again, this is another significant thing that we sometimes don't realize. The change from the day of worship among the Jews from the Sabbath to the first day of the week, which is Sunday. For us, it's Sunday. Now, we gather predominantly, the church does, um, primarily as our main gathering service on the first day of the week, Sundays. This has been happening for 2,000 years. But that originated with a handful of Jewish disciples. Now, the thought that a Jewish person would just decide after 1,500 years of history, you know, we're not going to worship on the Sabbath anymore. We're going to actually start worshiping on the first day of the week. Never would have happened. Never has happened. You find a Jewish congregation today, you're going to find them worshiping on the Sabbath, just like they have from the time of Moses. And nothing has changed. So for, remember, these disciples are Jewish. So for them to go from the emphasis being on the Sabbath to the emphasis being on the first day of the week, this is a huge thing. And like I said, sometimes this kind of stuff is lost on us because we don't realize the, the cultural and the religious significance. But the, the point is simply this, that it never would have happened uh, had there not been a resurrection. You could never get a Jew to alter the day of worship unless something uh, of some extraordinary magnitude happened. And it did. Why do we worship on the first day of the week? Because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so that is a, an evidence, I believe, in support. And then we have the post-resurrection appearances. And this is the funny thing, because the skeptics, the critics, uh, they seem to overlook all of these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Now, when we read in the gospel accounts of the resurrection, it's, we, we're not just reading like, uh, like hearsay, like, hey, we heard that the tomb was empty. We heard that there was a resurrection. Hallelujah, Jesus rose from the dead. Go out and tell everybody that's what happened. That's not how it went, was it? The Jesus who rose from the dead appeared to people. He spoke with them. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, the first person. And he told her to go tell the other disciples. And then he appeared, and uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the great chapter on the resurrection, Paul gives a list of the people that Jesus appeared to. He, appeared to. he appeared to the apostles. He appeared to uh, Peter. He appeared personally to James, Paul tells us. And, of course, he appeared to Paul. But in that list, Paul says that Jesus, on one occasion, after the resurrection, remember there were 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, during that 40-day period, Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. So there was a gathering of, of over 500 people, and Jesus appeared to him. And then Paul said this. He said that the majority of those people were still alive at the time that he wrote that. He said, a few have died, but the majority are still alive. So in Paul's time, you could go and interview from among those 500 people, people that actually had seen the resurrected Christ. So we have all of these 
appearances of Jesus to all of these different numbers of people. Then, this is number seven, the unexpected nature of the bodily resurrection. And you see, this is another thing that sometimes is lost on us a little bit. The Jewish understanding of resurrection was that there would be a collective resurrection of the people of God at the end of the age. Nobody thought ever that there would be the resurrection of one single individual. That was completely unheard of in Jewish thought. So actually in in John chapter 11, Martha expressed the Jewish belief. When Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus had died, and Jesus said to Martha, you know, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know my brother will rise again on the last day, at the great resurrection on the last day. Every Jew knew that and believed that. No Jew thought of the resurrection being a singular individual resurrection. So there was no expectation that Jesus would rise. There was no Jewish expectation that, well, of course, there was no Jewish expectation the Messiah would die, let alone rise. So this, again, is one of those amazing things. Now, we talked earlier about the, um, the spirit theory that Jesus didn't really bodily rise, just his spirit rose. But you see, another problem with that is that the word resurrection, it can't even apply to a spiritual resurrection because the Greek word means to stand again. And it applies to the body, the body standing again, coming up out of the grave. So the unexpected nature of the bodily resurrection Three more things really quickly. The conversion of two skeptics. Jesus had, uh, one of his brothers was named James. And of course, Joseph and Mary had other uh, children. And James was one of them. And James was a skeptic. James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah during the the lifetime of Jesus before his, his crucifixion and resurrection. He was a skeptic. And it was after Jesus rose from the dead that it, Paul tells us that he appeared specifically to James. Did I say specifically or specifically? I meant specifically if I said specifically. <laughs> he appeared specifically to James. And then James believed. And James became the leader of the early Jerusalem church. But then there was another skeptic that he appeared to. And this skeptic was converted. And you remember him? His name was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul wasn't a passive skeptic. He was, a, he was a, an activist against those who believed in Jesus. And he persecuted them. He had them cast into prison. He said he even cast his vote for them to be put to death. And he was in a rage. And he was traveling from Jerusalem all the way to Damascus because he heard there were people believing in Jesus there, and he was going to arrest them. The high priest gave him authority, and he's going to come back, and he's going to uh, prosecute them in Jerusalem. But remember, it was on the road to Damascus that the greatest antagonist of the time against the faith met the risen Savior and became the greatest protagonist of the faith. And so that's a powerful evidence. And then there is the accepted character and claims of Jesus. This is interesting to me because, you know, even the most progressive or liberal or however you want to define it, even those who, they reject the resurrection, they reject the biblical account, they don't believe in the Bible as the authoritative word of God. Uh, Ironically, interestingly, many of them will still uh, acknowledge the, the extraordinary character of Jesus. So it's sort of undisputed. Even amongst atheists, they'll say, well, Jesus was fine. He was a good man. But the problem is, that's not what the New Testament says about him. He was certainly a good man, but he was much more than that. And so this has been accepted um, even amongst skeptics. 
his character and his claims. And then finally, the last one that I want to mention here is the reliability of the eyewitness documents that record the events. And that would be the reliability of the New Testament. So the the New Testament is a, um, like much of scripture, it's a historical record. And it's an accurate, it's a verifiable historical record. We have um, the manuscript evidence for the New Testament so far exceeds the manuscript evidence for any other um, written work from antiquity. So in a university today, if you go to a university and you study any kind of you know, ancient culture or civilization or just do a history of, if you want to do a history of the Greeks or the Romans or whatever, um, they're going to try to get as close back to the time as they can, and they're going to use the, the ancient sources that they have. But the, they're extremely limited in their sources. If you took the 10 best sourced uh, ancient historical types of things, and you compiled everything together, you would have about 3,300 manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts to support. This is for like 10 events or 10, you know, people mixed in with that or events mixed in with that. These are the things that you study in a university. This is, you know, you're going to go get your history degree or whatever. You're going to study this. And no professor is going to cast doubt on the validity of this. They're going to assure you that we know that this happened. The New Testament alone has 5,600 Greek manuscripts, not to mention translations and codices and all of these different other things. And when you put the number together, if you include the Old Testament as well, you have over 60,000 sources. If you just leave it to the New Testament, you have over 25,000 sources. So if we have this limited number of sources for all of these other events from antiquity, but nobody questions the validity of them because, hey, we've got these manuscripts right here. This is what happened. You would think when you've got the kind of evidence for the New Testament that so far exceeds all of that, people would say, well, man, the evidence is right here. Of course, they don't because there's a bias against it. But this is one of the strong evidences that these reports are accurate. I mean, let's face it. We only know history because somebody who lived at the time wrote it down and passed it on. We only know the history of the United States of America, its founding and so forth, because somebody wrote about it and passed it on. And so this is history. We're reading history. Somebody wrote about it and passed it on. The question is, did they write reliably? And all of the sources point to um, a, a reliable document. So these are the things that are the evidence. Now, when I think of the, uh, the theories that people use to reject, and then I think of the evidences, and we haven't exhausted the evidences, but, but when I think about these two things, to me... It just seems like all of these theories that people use to reject the, the resurrection, they, they just they don't seem to have any weight behind them at all. And yet the things that you can look at that point toward the resurrection, they seem to be valid things. There's evidences. We can... We, no, these things happened, and therefore we can conclude this. So, when we read Mark's account, or Matthew's, or Luke's, or John's, we can say with confidence, this happened. Now, I'm not going to even go into detail, but this doesn't even, there are other things that we could look at. One of the main evidences is the millions of changed lives 
throughout history. Millions have changed lives. When I was with John Lennox a few weeks ago and we were doing a conference and um, I said to John, I said, you know, people say there's no scientific evidence for God or the Bible or the Christian faith or whatever. I said, you know, I think there is. I think uh, because scientific evidence is based upon uh, observation and, you know, things that you can see, things that you can test and so forth. Then you draw your conclusions. And I said, you know, we've got millions and millions of lives that have been transformed radically and they have one thing in common. And in many cases, only one thing in common, and that one thing is faith in Jesus. So to me, that seems like a, a good scientific test. And I was so glad that Dr. Lennox said, you're right. That is scientific evidence. And then I read in his book, and he put it in his book. And I thought, okay. <laughs> Dr. John Lennox said this, and I'm okay saying it too. But this is the reality. So, but this brings us back around to where we started. The truth of the resurrection, it has application to me and to you and to everybody. So again, like C.S. Lewis said, if this really happened, then it is of the ultimate importance. And that's right. Because the things that Jesus claimed, he, he made these claims that they were universally applicable. Jesus never, ever gave any hint that he was only speaking to a select, small group of people, a certain race of people, or anything like that. Jesus spoke universally. He's speaking to all humanity. And so... Since the resurrection is true, then it's also true that there is a God. It's also true that Jesus is God the Son. It's also true that the Bible is true. It's also true that heaven and hell are a real place. And it's also true that the destiny of every human being is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just remind you of a few things Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live again. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus said that. Think about that for a moment. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, said, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, nobody before Jesus ever said anything like that. And the only people that have said it after him were uh, echoing him. And usually they're crazy people that are doing that. But you know, I can't think of a sane person that's ever said anything like that. But not only did Jesus say that, because conceivably somebody could say it, doesn't make it true, but Jesus didn't just say it, Jesus gave evidence. Because when he said these words, he said them to Martha, the sister of Lazarus, who had died and was in a tomb and had been there for four days. And Jesus comes, and now Martha is upset. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus said, Martha, your brother is going to live. And I already referred to what she said. I know he's going to live at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said, Martha, I am the resurrection. That's, that, that was the context for these words. I am the resurrection and the life. So Jesus made that claim. Jesus also said something that I think many already know, but he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus claims to be the life. He claims to be the way to God. And again, the question comes back, well, is the, is the claim valid? Well, based on everything we've seen, if Jesus rose from the dead, then that claim is, it's, it's, it is valid. No one comes to the Father except through him. Now, Paul put it this way. Paul was there in Athens 
in Greece. He was there at the place called the Areopagus, and he was there before the philosophers of the day. And he began to preach the gospel to them. And he said this. He said, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. That's the evidence that God has given to the world that there is a judgment day and that there is a judge. And that judge is the one man in history that was raised from the dead. And of course, that man was Jesus Christ. And so, every person has to reckon with this claim. And every person's eternal destiny hinges on their acceptance or rejection of the resurrection of Christ. If you believe it, if you receive it, then as the next few verses say, go into the world, preach the gospel to everyone. Uh, those that believe and are baptized will be saved. Those who do not believe will be condemned. And just as sure as the resurrection itself is true, these words are true as well. But we can put our faith in Christ. And perhaps you're with us today and maybe you've not put personal faith in Christ. Maybe you've never really received that forgiveness that comes through asking Jesus to forgive your sins and to be your Lord. And, and recognizing that the gospel is that Christ died for your sins, but that he rose again as well. But he rose again so we can have life. And Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. And all of that happens through putting your faith in him, believing in him, trusting him to save you. And he will save you. But he won't save you apart from your asking him to save you. We have to ask him to save us. But if you haven't done that, please do that today. I urge you. But I, I want to say also to those who have done that, I want to just remind you of, there are many things that we could go into on this, but I, I just want to remind you of the glory of this truth of the resurrection for us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus. Because this means, most simply, it means that death is not the end. Death is not the end of life. Death is, is as we know it, it is the end of our physical life. At least this manifestation of our physical life. But we transition from this life into that life that is everlasting. But let me read to you from uh, Paul's words to the Corinthians. We'll close with this. He said, the first man, Adam, was of the earth made of dust. The second man, Jesus, is the Lord from heaven. As was the man made of dust, so also are those who are made of dust as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And here it is. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Wow, that's it. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, you and I, we bear the image of the man of dust, Adam. We are the descendants of Adam. And we bear that image. But for those who put their trust in Christ, we will also one day bear the image of the heavenly man. 
And, and it's what Paul is saying is, is as sure as you've born the image of the earthly man, the man of dust, you will bear the image of the heavenly man. See, God has a promise. And the resurrection of Jesus, here's the amazing thing. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits, Paul says, of those who rise from the dead. Guess what? Every believer in history who has died will rise again from the dead. Had a phone call the other day, a question from a lady. <laughs> She's trying to figure out, as many people do, the dead in Christ rising first. What does all of that mean? And we said, well, you know, that's a reference to the body. The body's going to rise first. She said, what? Are you telling me my body's going to rise from the dead? <coughs> and we said, yeah, that's what we're telling you. <coughs> And she said, hallelujah. That's amazing. I've never heard that before. Isn't that amazing? Those who have trusted Christ are going to rise from the dead. We're going to bear the image of the heavenly man. And the resurrection means that. And, and Daniel put it this way, and we'll, I'll really close with this. Um, actually, the angel spoke to Daniel, and he said, Daniel, go your way. You're going to rest. And at the end of the days, you will awake. For those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Wow, what a picture. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and eternal contempt. But that's the promise. Those who sleep in the dust are going to awake. And those who put their trust in Jesus to everlasting life. It's that simple. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of the resurrection to life for all those who have trusted him. So, Lord, we thank you that that is true. And we thank you, Lord, that by simply but sincerely putting our trust in you today, that we have life, eternal life, and that we will bear the image of the heavenly man. Praise you, Lord. Lord, thank you that you rose from the grave. Thank you that you conquered death. Thank you, Lord, that you are our living hope. And Lord, we would just pray. I pray for anyone this morning who's not in that place yet where they've made that genuine connection with you through faith. I pray, Lord, that they would reach out as you're drawing them to yourself, Lord, that they would reach out and receive that gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help them to do that. And Lord, I pray for every believer here that we would be strengthened and just greatly encouraged by these amazing, amazing truths that you have indeed conquered the grave. Hallelujah. We praise you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen.